The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife. Save the environment. Save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Today we have an exciting show lined up for you with special guests from the International Fund for Animal Welfare. Uh, We'll be speaking with Grace Gabrielle, Kelvin Ailey, and Peter LaFontaine. I met uh, Grace and Peter at the Ivory Crush, so as we've been talking about, this is a continuation of highlighting a series of what is going on in protecting and saving our wildlife. People have always had a relationship to animals. Most of the mammals, past and present, existed here long before and then alongside us. But today, our relationship to wildlife has changed, depending upon where you live, your perspective, and your culture. But I'd venture to say we could all agree that our inner contemporary relationship between humans and animals, that animals often come up on the short end, often paying with their lives. Conservation successes and species survival will be about bridging global differences, cultures, and creating policy and laws that will strengthen the common ground that I think we all share, that of species survival and future viability, as ultimately this will be an indicator of our planet's health and thus a foundation for survival, people, and animals. Today, we'll discuss what many folks simply don't much think about through their ordinary day, the trade, legal and illegal, in wildlife, both dead and alive, that it is reaching astounding proportions and coming up against extinctions. Amongst a variety of global cultures, societies, varying laws and policies, one organization stands out, IFAW as they build bridges and linkages between governments and policies to bring sound science, animal rights and welfare, and cultural relationships to the table to bring wildlife conservation into a changing world and update the model. So I would like to welcome Grace Gabrielle, Kevin Ali, Ailey, and Peter LaFontaine. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Ali. And Peter? Hey, sorry. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. So, welcome. Um, I think we're going to jump right in. If I would like each of you, please, if you could give us a b- brief background about your areas of expertise within IFA. Grace, how about we start with you? Good morning. Thank you, Ellie, for having me. Um, 
My name is Grace Gabriel. I'm um, IFOS Asia Regional Director, um, and my work has been um, overseeing IFOS programs and, and projects in Asia. But in the last decade, I would say a lot of my work is focusing on educating uh, consumers and reducing the demand for wildlife parts and products in China sp- specifically. That has got to be quite um, quite, <laughs> quite a job. Uh, I can only imagine the, um, the scope and scale of what you have to do. So um, I would like our listeners to know that you can visit uh, IFAW's website at ifaw.org and learn a lot more about our guests today. And the website is very in-depth in terms of the projects that Grace is working on and that Kevin is working on and that Peter works on. So, um, Grace, you're, he- you're, you're sort of the head of the China-Asia department, so we'll get into some spe- specific questions on that. Kevin, uh, from your background, I understand you deal a lot with policy and following and tracking where wildlife illegal and uh, legal ends up, uh, the path that it takes globally. Why don't you give us a little bit of background information about that? Yes, um, just uh, thank you for having us having us on the program, and you know, just again, thank you to you, the listening public, your listeners, for engaging in this very important issue. Um, I am Kelvin Ely. I am the program director for IFOS Global Wildlife Trade Work. We do have a global program that focuses quite a lot on addressing the illegal trade in wildlife as, as well as looking at the inhumane and cruelty involved in the, both the legal and the illegal trade and uh, work, work with GRACE and other regional directors to ensure that, given our global spread, we are addressing the issues associated with wildlife trafficking from the source, transit, and the consumer countries. Um, within the past three years, I've been largely focused on you know, managing our partnership with Interpol and working with a lot of national partners in the various regions where we operate to build capacity enforcement capacity to address wildlife trafficking at its source. So it's a, it's a pretty broad spectrum of work, a lot of it focused on training, equipping, and building the capacity for wildlife law enforcement uh, and folks on the front line protecting wild, wildlife from illegal trade. Well, this is fascinating. Millions of questions are popping in my head as I hear each of you talk about what you do. So I'm trying to make very fast notes, and hopefully I'll be able to read my writing later. So, Peter, why don't you give us a little background about you and what your uh, area is within IFA? Sure. Thanks for having me on, Ellie. Um, My name is Peter LaFontaine, and I'm the campaigns officer for IFA here in Washington, D.C., and I help to run our Elephants and Ivory campaign in the United States, and that encompasses both congressional action and also uh, what the administration is doing, uh, particularly the uh, recent executive order on wildlife trafficking. And uh, as with Grace and Kelvin, there's a lot going on in D.C., um, and we're seeing a lot of momentum, which is a really great thing. Um, it means a lot more work for me, so happy to have it. 
Well, you bring up a, an interesting point there, Peter, is that there is a lot going on in D.C. Most people uh, tend to think what's going on about wildlife conservation and how to combat wildlife trafficking and trade happens in Africa, which is, that's where the animals are, certainly. That's where the boots on the ground and the training is very effective. But let's today talk a little bit more about what goes on behind the scenes. So, um, recently, Obama had, uh, in July, there was an executive order which supported the ivory crush in Denver, where we all met. And then uh, there's the Clinton Global Initiative. So, Peter, does, um, does or either of you, any of you, um, where does the Clinton Global Initiative come into play here? Uh, that's an $80 million pledge to Africa in an effort to stop ivory poaching and save African elephants. Uh, this certainly fits in with IFAW's work. And how will IFAW go about following up on all of this? Let's start with uh, Kelvin. Yeah, well, thank you, Elliot. It's a very important question. I think that the the Clinton Global Initiative has been a very important initiative that has borne out from the leadership that um, that has happened under then Secretary of State Mrs. Hillary Clinton, who, under her leadership, um, really um, positioned the U.S. State Department to really play a critical role in addressing wildlife trafficking worldwide. IFORB is a, is a key member of that partnership. We are also a member of the Clinton Global Initiative, but we are also a member of the partnership which involves a number of conservation NGOs, animal protection NGOs in D.C., international NGOs, that came together um, recognizing the plight of the African elephant, recognizing the increased killings that we are seeing, recognizing the increase in the illicit trafficking of ivory, and um, compounding that, the long-term impact, which is obviously the demand, the demand for, for elephant ivory products in Southeast Asia, in particular China. We came together under the umbrella to stop the killing, stop the trafficking, stop the demand. And, you know, using the power and the influence of the Clinton Global Initiative um, and political will, we, uh, we all agree that this is um, an issue that's beyond one particular NGO to address. It's also an issue that's beyond um, one particular government to address. And given that it's a global, uh, global in nature, we all agree to come together to participate in this initiative, which is really focused on saving the African elephant from extinction by stopping the killing, stopping the trafficking, and stopping the demand. Excellent answer. Um, very well detailed. So I have one quick question. Where does the uh, rhino trade come into this? Uh, I understand elephants are highly critical and that the issue of elephant ivory and rhino trade are separate um, and they are being used by different areas throughout Asia and perhaps both Grace and Kevin can help our, help us understand where um, the extinction of the rhino and, um, you know, I'm going to put it out there, the, the proposed and suggested legalization of the trade in rhino horn, especially at a time when we are trying to reduce uh, this increase in wildlife trade and trafficking. Well, 
Right now, um, there are countries currently um, contemplating legalizing the trade of rhino horn, but um, we are um, writing and appealing to these countries, in fact, showing them the, the devastating impact of legalizing ivory trade in certain countries. Um, has done to elephant populations in Africa and show, and show, using that devastating impact to show um, the, the possibility that legalizing rhino horn trade is what, what's going to happen to rhino populations in Africa. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, this, this is, um, even though um, the, the trade is um, on the rhino horn trade, it's not um, in the past. Traditionally, rhino horn trade uh, in in China, for instance, is is very much linked with traditional Chinese medicine. But it's um, in in modern China, rhino horn um, for medicine has been banned in China since 1993. What we are seeing in um, online monitoring of the market of wildlife market wildlife trade market in general, what we found is rhino horn is increasingly traded as an investment as a um, in, in carving form. And it's not so much for medicine um, in, in China anymore. In Vietnam, that trade is, is more um, uh, still used as medicinal. That's excellent information. So Ellie, that's um, yes. Just, go ahead, Kelvin. Just add to what Grace was saying. I, I, I get your point on on the precarious state that the rhino rhinos are in right now. And I just just, just so you you know that you know our IFOS work to support wildlife law enforcement, whether it's through a partnership with the Interpol. Um, wildlife crime program or whether it's in partnership with national governments, you know, a lot of our work is gets towards protecting endangered species from trafficking. So that involves rhino. So for example, our partnership with the Interpol Environmental Crime Program is very focused on a project called Project Wisdom in Africa, which is very much geared towards preventing the illegal exploitation or the exploitation of rhinos and elephants. So, so rhinos are, are very much uh, in the forefront of what we are doing as an institution. Uh, obviously, the, the elephant ivory situation is critical, given what we are seeing, but the rhinos, as you have quite, quite rightly pointed out, are also in a precarious state as well. But our efforts on law enforcement, our work on consumer demand reduction, the work that Grace, the excellent work that Grace has been doing in Southeast Asia, a lot of this is, is not just looking at the elephant ivory situation. We're also looking at the, the tiger situation and the rhino situation. So I just wanted to put that uh, in perspective for your listeners so they could understand that, that we are addressing every single link on the illegal wildlife trade supply chain and that obviously, you know, targets uh, species of high commercial value, including rhinos as well. And thank you for that, Kelvin, because that was a critical issue, and you basically put together many questions very beautifully for me. So I appreciate that. So while we're on that subject, because Grace, you also led me into, uh, when you mentioned internet marketing, there's a whole aspect of that. But at the moment, Kelvin, since that's fresh in our minds, can you please further highlight the aspects 
of what wildlife crime and consumer awareness programs you're doing and how one goes about addressing each link along the illegal wildlife train uh, chain excuse me because it's it's convoluted and it's complicated source transit and consumer countries and how do you integrate animal welfare and conservation into these kinds of policies and planning yeah, um, excellent point. Um, I, I just want to take a little step back so you could could get a sense in terms of IFO's approach to the issue. Um, we are we obviously addressing for us the big issue is the illegal trade and the impact commercial exploitation is having on the species. That said, we are focused on what we consider the drivers to the trade. We are a, a, a solution oriented organization. We 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 are well aware, and I think a number of your listeners. Uh, a little more well aware of the problems associated with wildlife trafficking, so I, I don't want to go too much into that. But we are focused on the solution side of things, and from the drivers, we are looking at the poorly regulated markets. We are looking at the lack of enforcement capacity. We are looking at the inadequate uh, laws and legislation in place. And we are also looking at the increasing demand and consumption. And, and IFO is in a very unique situation. We have offices in the source countries. We have regional offices in the transit countries through our Middle East and North Africa office in Dubai. And we have an office of presence in the Southeast Asia, in particular China, which Grace is doing an excellent job and a team leading that work. And by virtue of, you know, you know, our spread, we have been, in the source side, we have been working with governments predominantly to um, address the issue of wildlife crime, especially um, providing support and equipment for people on the front line. When I say front line, I mean rangers, people that are trying to secure elephants and rhinos in a particular site, in a national park. And one of the critical issues there is that these uh, rangers are putting their lives on the line. Um, some of them are being killed trying to protect these animals, and some of them lack the relevant expertise and equipment. So we've been working with the national governments and local partners to provide basic equipment. And a lot of people don't understand. Sometimes, you know, provision of equipment goes a long way in boosting morale for folks who are on the front line uh, trying to protect these animals. Um, you know, given our presence on the transit side, we're working very much with customs and police to try to train folks to be able to identify species in trade, but also to be able to interdict, to detect, interdict, and prosecute wildlife crime. Because one of the challenges we are, we are faced with is that, you know, in most cases, this is a low-risk, high-reward initiative. And for a partnership with Interpol and national governments, we're trying to elevate that work. Um, and on the consumer side, so I could go on and on because we're doing, we, we, we do engage hands-on um, trying to address the solutions at the source, transit, and consumer but just, just to give you a sense in terms of how we go about doing that, we, we are an advocacy organization, so a big part of what we do is trying to engage policymakers to raise the level of wildlife crime. And for our work in, in, in the U.S., for our work for our offices in Europe, we have been working largely with national governments to raise the level of wildlife crime so it gets the attention that it deserves. There is a lot of data that's being put out there that is now starting to show very clearly the links between wildlife crime and other forms of transnational crime. Uh, so we are trying to urge governments at a policy level to take actions that, that increase the recognition of wildlife crime through the passing of legislation and policy and the increase in penalties for offenses associated with wildlife crime. So as I said, we, you know, we're doing quite a lot on that front in terms of, as an organization, that's trying to integrate public policy um, in decision-making at the national, international, and regional level. 
Well, that was an, a tremendous explanation, and at the moment, uh, that was perfect. We're going to head into a very short break, and then we're going to come back because I'd like to learn a little bit more about uh, what Grace is doing in China and how that fits in with Peter's work in Washington and uh, public campaigns. So we'll be right back after the break. Stick with us. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. We're with Grace... uh, Gabriel and I'm sorry, Kelvin Ali and Peter LaFontaine from IFA, the International Fund for Animal Welfare. Uh, during the break, uh, Grace brought up an incredibly important point, which sort of ties in with one of my questions. At the Ivory Crush, it was announced by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife that a $1 million reward for information leading to the arrest of ivory or poaching kingpins uh, that adversely um, are affecting and having a, a big-time effect on the scaling up and the increase of poaching. And IFA has just started a new uh, project. Uh, Grace, you, you mentioned a, a project called Arrest, which is partnering with Congress. Can you tell us about that, please? Yes, um, Arrest stands for Asia Regional Response to Endangered Species Trafficking. It's a program uh, funded by the U.S. government, and the the program is uh, pulling together um, governments from across Asia region. 
um, the, the three main goals of the program is, number one, build political will in the region to address wildlife crime and also build capacity in the region um, to, to increase and enhance the effectiveness of enforcement against wildlife crime. And also three is to reduce demand for wildlife parts and products in the region. Um, and this, this program, IFA is a, a partner in the arrest program. And our focus um, uh, in being a partner in the arrest is uh, specifically focusing on reducing online wildlife trade in, um, in the region. And as, as we all know, um, Internet technology has given um, pe- people a, a, a much easier and quicker way of engaging in all types of trade, including trade in wildlife parts and products. And so IFA has been work, uh, working on reducing online wildlife trade around the world um, as far back in, as in 2005. And we have had numerous reports um, uh, from market investigations and um, surveys on on this issue. And based on these reports, we have had success um, influencing policies at the national level uh, from from Europe to Asia on uh, basically having policies that are um, take a zero tolerance policy against. Uh, trade of wildlife, particularly endangered species, online. So this, this, our conversation so far brings me to a question that may be on everybody's mind. We've been talking about the major upsurge, increase in wildlife trafficking, illegal wildlife tra- uh, trafficking um, recently, and of course the following upsurge in battling this. Why? What do you think is causing this upsurge, and um, I understand all the various aspects that IFA is involved in to combat it. And but what is what do you think is causing this huge upsurge? It's it's only been happening within the last um, I'm going to say 10, 15, 20 years. Fifty years ago, we didn't have quite the same problem. Um, I'm going to throw that out to whoever'd like to address that. Peter, you wanted. Go ahead, Grace. Go ahead. Oh, I, I just, uh, I, I thought, go ahead, Peter Calvin or Peter. Uh, we haven't sure, heard yeah, from I can you take yet. track at this. Um, so, well, for ivory in particular, uh, you're right, we are seeing a really big surge in the amount of uh, poaching that's going on in Africa, the amount of consumption that's going on in places like Asia and the United States. Um, I, I would like to backtrack just a little bit. Uh, this problem actually was uh, huge 50 years ago. Um, Elephant populations across Africa and Asia were crashing, uh, due mostly to hunting. Uh, there was some uh, elephant uh, community conflict that was driving that as well. But um, back in 1989, at about the, the lowest point in the elephant poaching crisis back then, uh, CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, got together uh, and countries across the world said, we need to put a stop to this. Uh, these population plummets are not sustainable. Uh, this, uh, this species is going to be driven to extinction. They put a ban on international trade uh, in African elephants. And 
that lasted, uh, you know, the, the returns from that lasted for a couple of decades. And unfortunately now, uh, for various reasons, whether you want to talk about uh, the uh, economics in Asia or uh, various ways that poachers have found to circumvent the law and protection efforts, uh, elephant poaching has surged again. Uh, so it really has been. There's there have been a couple of couple of dips uh, in the population, and, and dips really doesn't do it justice. But um, right now we are facing uh, probably the most serious crisis that we've had since the last ban was put in place in 1989. Uh, well, and, man, yeah, so go ahead. Many, many are saying that you know elephants could be gone in anywhere from five to ten years. Yeah, I think it's it's yes. really important to realize that uh, when people talk about that, they're talking about regional extinctions. There are certain places, uh, South Africa in particular, where elephant populations seem to be doing relatively well. Uh, Central Africa, on the other hand, has seen some really drastic declines, and, and those populations could well be extinct within a matter of years. Uh, it's not hyperbole to say that within a decade, uh, it will be very hard or could be very hard to see uh, elephants in Central and Eastern Africa. Um, that said, well, I, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. I appreciate uh, the clarification, regional extinctions. Sure. Excuse um, me, but, that's very important. Yeah, but you are right to, to point out that uh, uh, continent-wide uh, populations really are dwindling. Um, we could be down to as few as 400,000 elephants across the continent. Um, there were millions of elephants, uh, contrast that, to the turn of the 20th century. Um, so it's a, it's a real huge issue. So that brings me to a couple of questions. CITES, for one, um, they're both the good guy and the bad guy these days. I mean, their mandate is to uh, monitor and enforce the trade and traffic in wildlife, live or dead. And uh, they had stopped the traffic in ivory in 1989. And then there were those two sales, the one to Japan and the one to China. There's a lot of economic um, conversation going on on both sides of the fence that uh, these sales uh, were, were not, that CITES was not paying attention to the indicators that in Asia it was gearing up to uh, take on more ivory and that um, through pr pressure from elephant range states of cached ivory. Uh, so how do, we, how do we reconcile this to the upsurge and the loss of this species today? How do we, how do we correct this? I, I, I mean, I know IFA is doing an incredible amount, and it's no one single thing. I have said so many times over the show that conservation is not linear, and it takes a long time. But we're in crisis mode. So how do we correct this kind of an error and, uh, from CITES and not do it again? Well, I it think it's Go ahead, yeah. Grace. Oh, sorry. Um, it is important to um, recognize that CITES had made a, a fatal error in terms of uh, allowing the the one-off sales um, to, you know, the two one-off sales, and particularly the second one-off sale at a time when China's economy was growing at, at double digits for the past 30 years, and also, um, you know, the, the surging middle class in China um, coveting ivory. When CITES banned ivory trade in 1989, um, China saw that since there is not going to be opportunity to have fresh ivory coming into China, China's uh, ivory carving industry was shrinking. 
um, a lot of the master, old masters stopped taking in uh, new apprentices, and um, the the whole industry was was reducing. And also, all the consumers know that ivory trade is banned, and nobody, you know, if if anybody is engaging in it, they know it's it's violating the law. However, when the one-off sale um, happened in two thousand eight, all of a sudden. You know, there's this millions of uh, middle class people who want to get ivory as a status symbol. That is seeing ivory as a status symbol is is a historical view. But previously, people didn't have the money, didn't have the means to get them. Now, all of a sudden, they have all of that. And that that was the the crux of the the problem, which created the the huge demand in China for elephant ivory today. So, in essence, you're saying it was almost an artificially created demand because of a fatal error by Saudis. If if that's if that's ha- if that's happening, how can we? Uh, I'm going to go out and say it. Trust CITES in the future, uh, without as as the the main head on all of this. Um, what I'm gathering is IFAW and other organizations that you partner with and work with are keeping CITES informed um, that things of what should and should not be done. I, I, I think Elliot, just to I totally agree with Grace. Just to add to what Grace has said, I mean, and to backtrack a bit, I mean, I, I think you asked earlier on what's driving this. I mean, whether it's elephants, whether it's rhinos, whether it's tigers, at the root of this illicit trade is the growing demand for end products made from, you know, the pats and derivatives of, of these uh, high-valued animals. And it's not only coming from, you know, from Asia. I think we are, you know, obviously, you know, China is, is, is a, has been identified, and it's, it's a fact, the largest market or destination market for illegal ivory, but it's also coming from, you know, the, the U.S. and other Western, Western countries that, that are feeding to feed that sort of insatiable demand for these uh, high-end products. And it's, uh, you know, I think one of the things we, we want to put in perspective is that, you know, CITES as a convention is, 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 is made up of a number of CITES parties. A lot of governments are members to this treaty. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that we feel that needs to be done um, is for countries to demonstrate some leadership going into the next CITES conference of the party and, and, and take some, some really hard decisions as, as they did in 1989, faced with the data as it is right now, faced with the poaching crisis, the illicit trafficking that's going on, and all, not only that, faced with very clear um, and irrefutable evidence, the links between the rise in the illegal killing of elephants and the increase in the consumption of ivory in China. It was made very clear. Uh, one of the, the eye-opener at the CITES meeting you know, in, in Bangkok this year was you know, looking at these systems that were set up by the CITES Secretariat um, with support from the CITES parties, the systems that were set up to either track the illegal killing of elephants or to track the illicit trade in ivory products, both um, came out and said very clearly the systems are showing that what we are seeing is unsustainable, that there is a quite, there's a high possibility that we could witness some extinction of elephant populations in our lifetime. So faced with this and faced with leadership by countries like the U.S. that have now destroyed their ivory, making a very strong, sending a very strong signal 
across the world that we, we will not tolerate any sort of legal trade in elephant ivory products. I think this is what we're asking governments to do. Governments have the ability to make those decisions. They have the ability to say we're not going to allow any import or export or sale of ivory. We want governments to do that. CITES as a convention with CITES parties as members, we would love to see the CITES parties come to the next COP and say we are not, we're going to return back to the decisions we made in 89, given the situation is almost the same and put in place uh, you know, a complete moratorium on the sale of elephant ivory products worldwide. So it can happen. It happened in 1989, and the experts have shown that after 1989, elephant population started to recover. So there is a solution to it. The question is, is there a political will among the CITES parties to do this? Because the strength of CITES is in the membership. Each country is one vote, and if we can get countries to come, and take that decision based on what's happening to the African elephant and the African rhino as well, then hopefully you know, we can start reversing some of the tide in terms of what we're saying. So this is where each of you and the roles you play within IFA have a direct impact on what's going on in changing policy and increasing the political will to protect wildlife and um, all wildlife, not just elephants and rhinos, but tigers, as you said, leopards. We all went through the repository tour at uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and it was an astonishing sight to see uh, the amount of wildlife there and, and the ivory, of which they said was maybe 10% of what comes through the U.S. So wildlife trade and trafficking is very big business. It is, um, it, it's, it's, a difficult business to understand. So, Grace, let me go to Peter for a second. Peter, uh, you're, you do a lot of the campaigning in D.C., and you said earlier that there is a lot going on. Um, tell us some of that. Sure. So, you know, as Grace mentioned and is sort of generally understood, China is, um, is big fish here. Um, but what a lot of folks don't understand is that the United States is actually the world's second biggest market, uh, second biggest retail market for elephant ivory products behind China. Um, and that encompasses both legal trade and illegal trade. Um, now, what the president is doing, I'm, I'm not sure if you've talked about this on previous shows, uh, he actually came out with an executive order um, that would help increase funding for uh, projects in Africa, but would also... Um, use the uh, various federal levers to put in place domestic measures that can help reduce illegal wildlife trade. Now, what we're, we're trying to um, ask them to do is, as Kelvin said, to come out in favor of a moratorium in the United States. Um, because CITES uh, countries tend to, there tends to be some sort of momentum um, that comes from each individual country action, we think that the United States putting a ban or a moratorium in place would send a really strong message to other consumer nations like China, saying that this is something that cannot be countenanced. Um, that's something that can be done both through the White House actions. It could be done through Congress. There are various ways that we can get a moratorium in place. And we're seeing a tremendous amount of public support for the idea. We actually commissioned a poll uh, this summer that found that about 80% of Americans were in favor uh, of a moratorium on ivory if it would help to save elephant populations in Africa. So we have some really good returns coming in. Uh, we're working with several members of Congress who are interested in the concept. 
Uh, it's apparent that the White House has given this some thought. We're not exactly sure where they stand at this point. Um, but like I said at the beginning, the momentum really is beginning to turn in favor of our, our cause here. In fact, there is a petition going around right now that's been going around for a few months. Uh, anyone can find it online to uh, press your representative and Congress to uh, sign this petition to press Congress to enforce this moratorium and the ban on ivory within the U.S. As Peter just said, um, ivory, the U.S. is one of the largest users of ivory, um, and it is not illegal at this point to trade in ivory within the U.S., if I understand that clearly. It's illegal yeah. to bring it in, but there's still a trade within the U.S. on ivory. So well, it's I'm important glad you that brought that up. As, as Grace uh, alluded to earlier, the concept of having a bright line of illegality is really important. Um, when the CITES uh, one-off sales occurred, that, that erased the concept of, of a bright line, of, of people being certain what was legal and illegal. The same is true in the United States. There are various exceptions made, things like port-hunted trophies uh, for antiques that you can import and export, uh, and those have really cast uh, the legality of ivory in the United States into doubt. People simply don't understand what's legal, what's illegal, and the illegal trade, when poachers and smugglers bring in shipments of ivory that slip through our borders, because there's no oversight, um, of, of domestic uh, ivory markets in the United States, uh, it's really easy to mask the illegal trade. Basically, it acts almost like money laundering. As soon as it's past our borders, you can say what's illegal and what's legal. So we're trying to get folks to understand that every piece of ivory comes from a dead elephant, and as likely as not, it was a poached elephant that, that the ivory trade contributes to this horrific uh, decline in elephant populations. Well, thank you for that clarification. We need to step away for a quick break, so hang with us. We're with IFA, and uh, we'll be right back after the break, and you don't want to miss the rest of this show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live. 
the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. We're with uh, Grace Gabriel, uh, Kelvin Ailey, and Peter LaFontaine of the International Fund for Animal Welfare. This uh, organization truly is unique in the sense that they uh, look at a problem and find solutions from a wide variety of perspectives. As we said, conservation is not about one thing. It's not about animals sitting in Africa and that we're so far away. And part of the problem is uh, here in the West especially, is that it's very intangible for us to even consider about what's going on uh, over there at, or elsewhere in China, in Africa, and the decimation of these populations. We understand that it's happening, but we don't always understand what can be done about it. So I really suggest and urge our listeners to go to ifaw.org and uh, get a good understanding of the various projects that they're working in. Previous Previously, Kelvin had mentioned that we are definitely losing regional populations of elephants through particular areas in Africa, Central Africa, East Africa is is losing some of theirs. We're losing approximately 35,000 elephants a year, and that's a huge number, but it doesn't really say where they're coming from. Recently in the news, today, uh, there's a meeting going on in Botswana starting today about um, the overpopulation of elephants there. Um, can anybody hear Kelvin? Or uh, I, I guess that would be Kelvin's um, bailiwick. Can you tell us a little bit about that? No, I think, yeah, Ellie, just for your listeners to know, I, the, 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 the meeting that's taking place is the African Elephant Summit, and it's, it's been um, uh, undertaken by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the IUCN. And the IUCN is this international conservation body that maintains different subgroups that focus on, on science around protecting animals. So there's the African Elephant Specialist Group, and they are responsible for ensuring that, that, that the information that has to do with elephant populations and assessments and trends in trade and poaching is up to date. So it's not necessarily it, the government of Botswana is hosting that meeting. So it's not specifically about to talk about the overpopulation situation in Botswana. The, the meeting actually is billed as an international summit, uh, heads of state, various agencies. IFOR is participating. We have our regional office in Southern Africa and East Africa is there. And again, it's just another opportunity to look at the two urgent threats facing the survival of the African elephant, which is the rise in the illegal killing and the rise in the illicit trade. So it's not specifically to address the issue of, of overpopulation of elephants or the perceived overpopulation of elephants in Botswana. But what I will say for your listeners is that, you know, one of the things that was very troubling this year to most people who are working on the African elephant issue, in addition to IFO and other conservation NGOs, is this is one of the first times where every single, based on the data, 
that's put out by CITES uh, through their system that allows for the monitoring the illegal killing of elephants. This was one of the first times that there has been disturbing signs that every single elephant population across the four sub-regions of Africa, Southern Africa, Eastern Africa, Western Central Africa, every single sub-region experienced some high level of poaching. So although uh, countries in Southern Africa, like Botswana and others, uh, may put forward claims in terms of the elephant population, every single sub every single area is experienced some, some level of poaching. And for us, it's quite simple. You know, it's quite simple. Is that the rise in the illegal killing of elephants is caused by, you know, obviously the long-term demand, as we've said, the demand for high products, as well as, you know, the fact that governments are just not equipped to deal with the type of poaching that's going on. Uh, and we, are, as an international organization, is working with all the governments, including Botswana and the Southern African countries, to help provide the capacity that they need to protect the elephants. We don't think now is the time to address or discuss any issues around, you know, you know, elephant population as it is, given that what happens on one continent affects what's happened across the continent as a whole. So um, I just wanted to put that in perspective. It's not spe I, I haven't seen um, you know, information coming out that says it's specifically about the overpopulation issue. But just so you know, Botswana government is just the host and the meeting is intended to address the elephant situation African-wide. Thank you for that clarification, because there is a lot of buzz going on the Internet, as usually happens when something like this gets announced, that everybody needs to get on the bandwagon and everybody wants to be heard, which obviously just is not possible at some of these meetings when you need to stay focused and cover the issues and find solutions and prioritize. So that brings us to, if we're to win this battle on the trade and uh, trafficking in wildlife and the loss of species, not just elephants and rhino, but tiger, lions um, that are being substituted for tiger bones, the, the whole concept of farming our wildlife, which to me is industrializing it for an economic gain. We understand there has to be an economic benefit for wildlife. But if we're to win this battle, basically in what this show is about and having guests like you on is that we need to um, raise social awareness and social marketing programs that target key consumer groups such as business people, political leaders, and design incentives for local communities to protect and conserve the wildlife around them. Grace, I know you're working a lot on that in China, and we have um, you know, we have about five minutes, uh, six minutes left. If you could fill us in a little bit on an overview of what you're doing there, uh, like Project Keystroke, Project, excuse me, Project Worthy, if you could fill us in a little on that. Um, yes, uh, our campaign in China to reduce uh, the demand for wild, uh, wildlife focuses on. Uh, the, the three areas, the same as the way we're focusing on the entire trade chain, um, from the supply, which means policies and laws, which brings wildlife, uh, supplies wildlife into the market, and also the, the um, trafficking and, and the trade um, increase, which, which deals with uh, enforcement, we need to increase the enforcement, as well as uh, behavior change communication to get uh, consumers to reduce the demand and consumption. On the, on the supply side, um, in fact, 
um, when, when we're on the ivory issue, we're focusing on China. Um, our work in China has created a great impact in terms of reducing the overall ivory trade, um, uh, the trade of ivory online. Uh, because in, in 2007, as early as 2007, China's largest online marketplace, Taobao.com, Taobao means uh, uh, treasure hunt in Chinese, Taobao banned elephant ivory, tiger bone, rhino horn, turtle shell, shark fin, many other wildlife products on, on, from online trade. And led by Taobao, many other um, marketplaces, online marketplaces in China have taken a zero po tolerance policy on uh, wildlife trade online. And that has um, great impact in, in um, reducing the overall amount of wildlife uh, traded online. For instance, we our our work has in 2012 had successfully reduced um, 322 million dollars worth of uh, elephant ivory and rhino horn carvings to be auctioned in China. Um, and also um, on the behavior change campaign, we need to understand what Chinese um, regard, how they view ivory. So IFAW survey previously had found that 70% of the Chinese do not know ivory comes from dead elephants, because in Chinese, ivory is literally means elephant teeth. And people feel that teeth can fall off and people don't have to die. And, um, and Based on that understanding, our campaign have focused on just just the simple knowledge, making people realize that every piece of ivory comes from a dead elephant and urge people not to buy. And our campaign, uh, a recent evaluation shows that our campaign had successfully reduced the high-risk people, people who are most likely to buy ivory, from 54% down to 26%. So that, that's really encouraging. It shows me I'm Chinese myself. I sometimes wonder, are Chinese prejudiced against elephants? And this shows me that, no, Chinese are not prejudiced against elephants. And, and if, if you would give them that knowledge, and people, most people will be able to make an ethical choice in, in, in consumption. Well, thank you for that. It's, it's, you've all made incredibly uh, clear points that I hope our listeners have, have got, been able to gather together, that it, it takes enforcement on the ground, beefing up the ability to enforce on the ground, which includes laws, policy, and government will, but it also takes social will, and that is something we can all do and that we can all participate in, in, uh, in, in, in participating online through your social networks and uh, telling your friends and signing petitions. It's something that takes very little time and something that you can do. But you can also uh, uh, donate to these organizations. Uh, your financial support is critical. Even though we bandy about numbers like $80 million from the Clinton Global Initiative or the $1 million uh, offer for information from U.S. Fish and Wildlife, that barely covers the kind of work that needs to be done 
on the global scale. Yes, admittedly, part of it has to come from within each country and uh, each organization, such as IFA. They're doing their bit. It's time for each of us to do our bit. So I would like to say thank you to Gabriel, uh, Kelvin, and Peter. And we have about one minute. Is there something one of you would like to say, or all three of you, to take away today uh, for our listeners? Sure, yeah, I'd like to encourage folks to, if they're interested in signing the petition for domestic action here in the United States, they should visit our website at ifa.org slash ivorycrush, and we can use all the help we can get. So thanks very much for having us on. And thank you. We've got 30 seconds. Anything else? No, I just wanted to say that, you know, with the help of your listeners, I think, you know, we 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 are facing a serious crisis with the African elephant and rhinos and other endangered species, and hopefully... With the help of your listeners, we can all <clears throat> all uh, move forward to making sure that these animals get the protection that they deserve. So, listeners, yeah. this is the spirit of the time of year where we give, where we think, and we think about things other than ourselves. So this is the time that you can help make a donation to your favorite uh, wildlife organization, whether it's Wild Eyes, uh, and through our website, or visit IFAW and make a donation, sign the petitions. Do something. Every little bit helps. So on that note, once again, I would like to thank all of you for being here. I would love to have you back because we barely scratched the surface of what all is going on and what IFA is involved in. I urge our listeners to look at IFA.org and uh, get a deeper understanding of what's going on. And until next time, this is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.